All right. I can't tell if the locust or whatever is in your audio or my audio or the cicada. The what? I don't hear a cicada. It might be me then. Okay. But that should be easy to edit out. It's just funny because I just hear like a insect screaming in the background of the audio right now. <laughs> oh, I hear it now. Ah! <laughs> Won't someone please fuck me? <laughs> Isn't that what you scream? I guess. Do, do, do. That's how it goes. Okay. That's how we're leading it in. Okay. Stop screaming. My God. Is it my episode or is it yours? Uh, it's an even episode, so okay. it's mine. I just was distracted by the screaming. Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss The Strange and Unusual. This is episode 76 of our series, Seeking Out the Weird, the Unexplained, and the Devious from Around the World. I'm Casey. And I'm Roya. This week, we are going to be discussing the dark depths of the satanic panic. <laughs> I was really happy well, with Satan. this episode idea. Yeah? I like it. It's a good one. I had a little bit of a hard time finding one that really fit into the idea. Because there's a lot of like, oh, and then they briefly thought it was a satanic cult, but not a lot of like, they actually investigated that it was right. <laughs> a satanic cult. Well, I mean, there's the one really super obvious one, the West Memphis. Yeah. And I didn't want to, so I thought about doing that, but I feel like to do that, to give that case justice, especially because like recent um, situations with the, um, the, um, oh my God, my brain just died. Yeah, I saw it happen. I saw it in your eyes. <laughs> With the, um, like, overturning their um, sentencing and, like, mm -hmm. looking into adjusting things and stuff like that and finding out, like, the DNA doesn't match any of them now and, like, all sorts of crazy stuff. And yeah. uh, I thought that that would be a better episode for us to spend some time or a better case for us to spend some time and really watch the documentaries and dig into it. Because there's a lot about that case that's really fucked up. Yeah, yep. There's a lot yep. of, like, cops are shitty, like, <laughs> all up in that case. Yep. Indeedly do. They are. Uh, so, if you want to hear us talk more shit about cops, you can follow us on social <laughs> media. Um, we are on Facebook, Search Strange and Unusual Podcast. We are on Instagram, uh, strange underscore unusual underscore podcast. We're on Twitter, underscore strange unusual. And of course, you can find us over at oh, Ovary. <laughs> ovary. <laughs> you can find us on Patreon.com at Patreon.com slash strange unusual. Uh, and yeah, we ACAB it up over there. <laughs> Uh, so what are you talking about then, Ryan? So I am talking about the deaths of the deaths that happened in Childress, Texas. Um, so Ooh. the death of Tate Rowland and the death of Terry Tropser. Trosper. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be telling you a little bit about the uh, initial uh, swan dive into the satanic panic with the book Michelle Remembers and the sort of moral... Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of moral panic that it uh, really instigated after that book was released. 
Yeah, I'm excited to hear about the origins because I don't know. Like, I know that it is a thing because, like, I've been it's Dungeons and Dragons. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and heavy metal music, right? Like, well, that's actually not where mine starts, but I'll get into it. So let me start with this. Wee woo, wee woo. Caution, danger ahead. Uh, we will be talking about child abuse child molestation, sexual abuse, murder, and huge miscarriages of justice, as always. ACAP. Uh, so on November 1st, 1980, a book called Michelle Remembers was published in Canada by St. Martin's Press. The author was psychiatrist Dr. Lawrence Pazder, uh, and the subject was that of an alleged true story of one of his patients, Michelle Smith, starting since uh, 1976. They were on this treatment together that he... Uh, documented okay this book became a bestseller um the inside cover of the book i was reading i i haven't read the whole book but it is on my list now that i have it um I, the inside cover says uh the synopsis features the story of the 27 year old michelle who went to dr pazder a quote prominent therapist uh to help deal with the trauma of a miscarriage and had a horrible dream um pazder did have a lot of credentials just to back up that prominent therapist line he was actually a he owned a private practice in victoria in british columbia he got his md from the university of alberta with a degree in tropical medicine from the university of liverpool Hmm. he practiced medicine in africa for a couple of years before returning to canada to finish his studies in psychiatric medicine at the mcgill university or university of mcgill on whatever (laughs) uh he was on several committees. Uh, he was a fellow of Canada's Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons. He was in the American Psychiatric Association, just to name a couple. Uh, so he was, you know, he was a pretty prestigious dude. Yeah. He was allegedly able to help Michelle Smith dig up these. Hold on. I have to deal with this. Oh, so he allegedly was able to help her dig up these old memories of a horrifying childhood experience. The book covers a year of sessions, which were all said to be recorded either on video or audio, in which Michelle claims that her mother had been forced into having a child uh, and then give that child to a group of uh, well-off Satanists for ritual use for their, quote, most important ritual. The quote from the inside of the book that I wanted to read to you is, uh, quote, They tried in vain to convert her to evil, using both torture and cruel psychological manipulation, and then began the Feast of the Beast, the three-month ceremony at which the intentional, I'm sorry, not intentional, international high priesthood of the Satanic Church gathered to invoke Satan himself. Through Michelle, quote, reliving, we see the child at a rough stone altar as Satan, standing in fire and chanting in bizarre rhyme, delivers his master plan. On the verge of being literally frightened to death, she's befriended by a glowing presence whose identity will change both theology and belief. Indeed, priests and bishops and cardinals, guarded at first, have become concerned with Michelle's testimony, and the Vatican has encouraged study to assess its significance. Michelle's experience is an unforgettable metaphor for the indomitability of the human spirit and the power of innocence. I just want to point out that I had all-you-can-eat sushi yesterday, and I feel like that was also the Feast of the Beast. That was the Feast of the Beast. (laughs) (laughs) I read Feast of the Beast, and I was like, that's every meal, baby. (laughs) The dedication inside reads, quote, 
to all who have the heart to hear the cries of children and the courage to stand up for them. Uh, it's important to note that Michelle was being treated by Pazder as early as 1973 for other issues of depression, including unresolved grief for her mother. Um, and then in 1976, uh, she was also being treated um, for the trauma of, of having a miscarriage. Uh, she said she felt like she had something important to tell him, uh, but couldn't remember or didn't know what it was. Uh, though they had tried to work through it, Pastor would later say that he thought Michelle was like, quote, a pressure cooker with a blocked valve, uh, and she was in danger of exploding. That doesn't sound like she a allegedly... good way to no. describe a patient. No, but it's it's the 80s, or it's the 70s, really, so... Uh, that's, you know, what they did. Uh, so she allegedly developed a rash with which Pazder felt confirmed his assessment and that her body was having a physical reaction to a psychological pressure. You know, stress can cause a lot of problems, but I've never heard a psychiatrist go, that rash is psychological. Uh, the two started these marathon after hour sessions in which Michelle would be, you know, hypnotized and uh, regress 22 years to relive the memories of her life at five years old, just like they were occurring. And there were over 600 hours of therapy. Wow. Uh, so she claimed that she was a prisoner of a satanic cult for over a year. She claimed that she was sexually assaulted during that time, tortured, forced uh, not only to observe, but to take part in ritualistic murder, including the killing of infants and nearly being killed herself. She claimed that she was confined inside cages and in a ritualistic effigy, which I just like imagine the wicker man and like she's up in the giant wicker man going, praise Jesus, bees, not bees, <laughs> not the bees. She claimed she had her teeth pulled, a tail and horns surgically attached to her body and witnessed a creation and reanimation of a body in some kind of Frankenstein-esque scenario. She claimed that she saw hell and she met Satan himself and due to her resistance, stopped his return to earth with the help of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the Archangel Michael. That seems like something a five-year-old can do. Yep. <laughs> uh, she also claimed that the three of them, or the, the four of them together, uh, the three mythical beings, told her that they were going to erase her scars and remove her memories, quote, until the time was right. So... She, you know, like got her teeth back and didn't have horns anymore, I guess. And then you'll magically remember when you're 27 years old. Is this the Mormon face? <laughs> <laughs> there are no golden plates. <laughs> that only one person can read from the inside of a hat. <laughs> According to Michelle and Dr. Padser, she was an essential figure in the battle of he heaven and earth. Or for heaven and earth, I guess. Not of heaven and earth. Whatever. <laughs> I don't think I have to tell you, though, that this story is entirely fiction. <laughs> I mean, mostly. She was a patient of Dr. Pazder, as far as I can tell, and did have the depression issues. Uh, but this whole satanic cult thing she spewed was 1,000% not true. But it would be a uh, really a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> It's called The Wicker Man. <laughs> uh, a book called uh, Theater, of, Theater of Disorder makes the claim that these stories were something that kept the doctor's attention. Pazder felt like he had done his job. Like I said, in 19, uh, by 1976, he was like, all right, cool. We did all the work we can do. You seem like you have a good handle on things. 
you don't need to see me anymore. And then suddenly she had this important thing she needed to tell him. Yeah. This claim extended the treatments for an extra 14 months. Like I said, there were 600 hours of this crazy hypno treatment. Yeah, almost like a Munchausen sort of yes. situation of just like, Very. you're saying that I'm better and you can't help me anymore. But what if I was crazier? <laughs> Yeah, very Munchausen. Uh, Munchausen. <laughs> this like a good dog uh, so she started ha- <laughs> Munchausen. <laughs> so uh, she started having these like recovered memories after Pastor agreed to start seeing her outside of office hours. Was he? In was she long- just trying to bang him? Like, are we gonna get there? Hang on to your hat. Oh shit! Put a hat on because you need to hang on to it. <laughs> Uh, so she started having these recovering memories, uh, as, and in these long sessions, uh, they would have physical contact. Pastor oh would hold her hand. She would rest against his shoulder when she seemed scared, that sort of thing. And I should mention that these two were both in relationships at the time. So they were both married to other people. Pastor <laughs> described himself as a devout Catholic and had had four children with his wife, Marilyn. Allegedly, there are court documents filed in divorce proceedings stating that between March of 1977 and June of 1979, Pazder would disappear with Michelle for long periods of time. And in 1979, Pazder divorced Marilyn and later married Michelle, which is gross. Yep. Uh, <laughs> there it is. As long... That, yeah, no, that's it. So long story short, uh this was the book that struck fear into the heart of north america and coined the term satanic ritual abuse they even went on uh to they went to the vatican together in 1978 to tell the church about these cults and how they needed to be stopped this is a worldwide problem (laughs) and so like the cardinal's like yeah okay we'll look into it uh and so loads of people started to come forward with stories like Michelle claiming to have details of satanic ritual abuse and murder and that they were a part of this sort of international cult. Sounds a lot like how people come out and claim that they're the Zodiac. Yeah. Uh, there are ooh, there are some things. One thing that really bugged me was there are some parallels later that I'll talk about. And one person I saw commented said this also sounds a lot like when one person comes out and says, I was sexually abused. All of a sudden, there's like a slew of women who want to join the join the fray. Yeah, and I'm like, there. I, ooh, it's so hard because there's like a difference. There's like safety in numbers, and then there's oh, I'm crazy too. Like, yeah, I. Mm. Well, but because it makes this- you like not to say that I disbelieve anybody, but it makes you wonder. Like, especially from the you know what we talk about on a weekly or biweekly basis, like that mm-hmm. we see we've seen how many cases that we've talked about where some crazy person will come in and say, ha ha ha, I'm the Zodiac. It's always been me. How many people have said that they were Jack the Ripper? How many people have they said they were the Zodiac? How many people, you know, like, and so sometimes it makes you stop and wonder like how many of these, and like I knew people in high school who got like women, girls in high school who got their boyfriends in trouble or arrested for false rape al- accusations mm-hmm. and things like that. There's and a- like it does happen, but that doesn't mean that you should disbelieve everybody because one in yes. 50, it's fake. One in 
One in 50, yeah. I mean, I just I, pulled that statistic out of my ass. I don't really know if oh, okay. that's that. I was like, oh, okay. But, like, <laughs> um, but still, you know, like, how many... It just makes you I stop once, and wonder, I guess. I was once listening to a... God, I don't know what a, a talk, I guess. Henry, Henry Rollins from Black Flag was doing this talk. And he was saying that he got accused of rape by this girl um because he was like not interested in her and then he suddenly was getting stopped on the streets being like yeah we have these charges against you because you know you're you raped you raped somebody and he was like the fuck like the police already didn't like him because he was a piece of shit you know poor punk guy on the street like i yeah it happened how many times it happened in like to young black men to in america as like you know well i don't want to tell my brothers and dad that i was sleeping with a black boy so i'm gonna say that he raped me or you know i can't remember the thing you know the whole situation that started like that you know the tulsa race riots oh yeah the the elevator yeah yes and like just different things like that we'll have to do and it's just there's so many things where it's like you know it it's can be a double-edged sword if the woman is it shitty is. yeah and then that also I, makes it harder for any other victims because yes. then they don't feel comfortable coming out because then no one's gonna trust them and that's why it's so underreported for men and for women sexual assault Indeed. is so underreported and that's and that's like the the worst part of this whole thing is having to read this and being like oh this is fucking made up <laughs> like yeah i'm a i'm a you know believe the victim type of person but i also don't think that the burden of proving your innocence should be on you know like you also have to be able to prove guilt as much as as the as the defendant or yeah is is trying to prove innocence well yeah that's that that the the burden of proof is on the prosecutor yeah yeah uh well Let's get off this soapbox and keep moving along. <laughs> there's some there's some kids coming ahead that we're not gonna like. So, <laughs> so they went to the Vatican. Criminal cases start popping up uh, of SRA and Padzer would Pazder, sorry, uh, would be called in as an expert witness on these fucking cases, as if he did more than just write a book about it. This guy didn't even call the cops and say, "Hey, maybe you should look into these fucking murders that this." 27 year old five-year-old just told me about <laughs> like yeah are there he any... just wrote it down and went this is my book i'm an expert now that's my canadian accent apparently <laughs> <laughs> sounds very uh posh english yes, for some reason. Yes, and one of these one of these criminal cases that popped up uh was of the mick martin preschool trial and there were there are so many of these there are several cases just like this it even has its own wikipedia page it's called daycare sex abuse hysteria oh yeah i mean we saw that happen just a few years ago yeah uh but there are so many about this time because of this book coming out this is the one i wanted to focus on because it was a huge huge trial so there's this giant moral panic going on resulting from the release of this book. And McMartin was the first of several uh, to have major, major media coverage uh, in the U.S. It's the longest and most expensive trial in U.S. history, spanning seven years with a price tag of $15 million. Wow. Virginia McMartin owned this premier preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. She had opened it in in the 50s i think i read and uh 
she had received the city's highest honor. It was the Rose and Scroll Award in 1977, which is basically like their Women of Woman of the Year Award. Uh, so her daughter, Peggy McMartin Bucky, and her children, and uh, Virginia's grandchildren, or Peggy's children, uh, they're Peggy Ann and Raymond. Uh, they all ran the school together. In 1983, Judy Johnson. What? Did you say something? No. Okay, sorry. Uh, in 1983, Judy Johnson, mother of one of the students at the preschool, went to police and filed a report stating that her two-and-a-half-year-old son had been sodomized by her estranged husband, as well as Ray Bucky. Um, she believed that this was true because her son was having painful bowel movements. Bucky at this time, like I said, he was the grandson of Virginia, and he was only 25 years old. He had been working there for about two years. There's a lot of dispute here whether or not her son actually confirmed or denied these accusations, but my gut says he was two and a half years old. Either way, how likely is it that he understood what he was being asked? Yeah. She also claimed that her son told her two other children were being abused. Wow, in this a consultation- two-year-old's got a really wide vocabulary. Yeah, right? In a consultation she gave in 1984, she claims that he was buried alive, uh, that he had been sodomized by a lion. I'm sorry, uh, that <laughs> i'm not done that peggy the the mother peggy uh drilled holes into the armpits of the children and that her son traveled by hot air balloon and saw witches flying so sounds like it's a little kid that needs to go into therapy because it's having some problems separating reality and pretend <laughs> well actually Johnson would later be diagnosed and hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. So she is not a great source of information. Yeah. And yet in 1983, when she spoke with detectives, she was taken at her word without question. Oh, man, there are some really fucking bizarre ones. If you ever want to look like hear some of her statement. Oh, it's so weird. She's like, and then Billy saw them do weird shit. <laughs> I mean, like, I understand and I agree that, like, if you have a kid who is saying, like, that a sexual assault is happening, 100% you have to take that. You have to investigate it. You have to get the kid out of that situation until you figure out, until you separate what's real, what's not. What's real, what's not. And everything like that. But the second that the kid was like, yeah, I got raped by a lion, I'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I went well, in a hot air balloon. They drilled holes into my armpits. like, <laughs> And it's so hard because it's like, what? But wait a minute. Is this the kid coming up with this or is this it the mom? It had to have been her. There's no way that a two and a half year old would have the wherewithal for to explain that. All right. Hold on. Here is, here's part of her testimony from February 15th and February 16th of 1984. Billy describes having communion in a church. A prayer similar in sound to the Lord's Prayer was recited. A goat climbed up higher and higher and higher. Then a bad man threw it down the stairs. It woke up later. Ray poked Peggy at the altar. Lots of candles. They were black. Ray picked his RT. Oh, Ray picked his right pointer finger. It bled. Ray put it in the goat's anus. Like, what? This sounds more like somebody, something a paranoid schizophrenic would say and not something a child would come a up with. A two-year-old. Not even yes. like 
like a eight-year-old who's seen maybe stayed up too late and watched too many horror movies you know or something that they would have this imagery to conjure up like a two-year-old wouldn't even know what a a two-year-old in california wouldn't even know what a fucking goat was Uh, so this, they're talking about how he was buried alive. There were no holes in the coffin. Babs went with him on a train with another girl where he was hurt by men in suits. Ray waved goodbye. The train moved fast. It had lights. Ray took him back to school. Possible, possibly location of organization, Big Brothers. Peggy gave Billy an enema before he was taken away. Staples were put in Billy's ears, nipples, and tongue. Babs put scissors in his eyes. Like, no, I think you'd know if your son came home with scissors in yeah, his eyes. Yeah, or, or staple injuries on his body. Yes. Yeah. So, I don't know why. No, I do. I understand why they went forward with this investigation, but I don't know why they gave so much credence to this one. Also, I'm just, I'm, I'm confident in the statement that if you were ever in a situation like, Oh, whatever deity forbid as a parent you are ever in a situation where you feel that your son or daughter has been anally raped by an adult mm-hmm. you're gonna be able to tell that that happened especially at two and a half years old like that's not something that's just you can't tell like even as an adult like consensual anal sex like yeah you can still poppers (laughs) but there's still like going to be evidence that something happened for a few Mm -hmm. hours after it happened minimally well so ray was taken in for questioning but police had police had nothing to go on uh so they were unable to arrest him at that time but when john the johnson's or Mrs. Johnson, rather, took her son to the doctor, the doctor reportedly found that this claim uh, to be consistent with molestation. And so Bucky was arrested. Um, 26 days after the initial report, the police sent a letter out to nearly 200 parents that had taken their children or were currently taking their children to the preschool, telling them that their children may have been abused and to question their children. That's great. That's the perfect way to not you know, seize everyone into a panic. Yeah, scare 200 parents. Scare Uh, 400 September 8th, uh, September 8th, 1983. Dear parent, this department's conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7th, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for the complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking a child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having been ob- uh, having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during a nap period, or if they are ever observed Ray Bucky tie up in a, ch- a child, is important. 
Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if any circumstances dictate same. We ask that you please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it would have in our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside of your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky, any member of the accused defendant's family, or employees connected to the McMartin Preschool. There is no evidence to indicate the management of Virginia McMartin's preschool had any knowledge of this situation, and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during this investigation also no other employee in the school is under investigation for any criminal act so all of the As adults you- immediately turned around and talked to every yep. single human Everybody. being they knew and as you can imagine this did not go well for the mcmartins i mean i get that you're uh, in kind of a tough place like as a police department trying to investigate something this large of a scale like especially with like you can't just talk to kids like you can to adults you can't bring them all in at once no i mean like (laughs) i understand why they went the route that they did but you're kind of in a situation where like no route is gonna be good given what you're investigating no i chuckled because you said they can't just bring in all these kids and question them and i'm like that's exactly what they did, though. Yeah, but I mean, it's not like adults. Like, adults, you would just bring all of them with the pretense of, like, hey, we need to talk to you. But, like, kids, yeah. you have to handle it a little bit differently, at least initially. So, the allegations brought forth against the McMartin slash Bucky family were uh, animal sacrifice, pornography, satanic rituals uh, that the daycare owners had built secret underground tunnels that led to ritual ceremony spaces and that the mcmartin family had ritually sacrificed a baby and flushed children down toilets you can't even flush big fish down toilets you can't even flush big turds down the toilet sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh so here's where we get angry we're not already uh, if- if we're not already angry. <laughs> so the Children's Institute International, or the CII, is a nonprofit abuse therapy clinic for children based in Los Angeles. Uh, at the time, led by Key McFarlane, the CII interviewed hundreds of children from the preschool using anatomically correct dolls. The techniques they used were leading and suggestive, inviting the child to use their imagination and speculate about the events that occurred. So one paper I read... Um, was there were a bunch of people from the university of el paso i can't remember it was like the psychological post or something i'll find it um but they listed five types of suggestion that were all used in the recorded interviews which by the way were used of course as evidence against the family yeah Uh, the five types were reinforcement repetition of questions co-witness information inviting speculation, and introducing new information. That will all be very Uh, important whenever we cover the West Memphis Three. (laughs) Yes. They cite a study which in which 120 children between five and seven were visited in their classroom by a young man known as Paco Perez. A week later, they were questioned about his visit. All the children questioned uh, were used, uh, they used like mundane leading questions like, did Paco break a toy while he was visiting? And then fantastic leading questions based on the McMartin case. Like, did Paco take you somewhere in a helicopter? Like, to just try to see what these kids would do. And half of the children were also reinforced with praise for the answers they were um, 
they were giving. So like um, if the if the answers were accusatory towards Paco, they would get positive praise. And if they were negative uh, or they would get negative feedback if it was a non-accusatory answer. So like if they said, no, we didn't go in a helicopter. Are you sure? You know, as opposed to, yes, we went in a helicopter. Oh, good. You're so smart, which is not good in a criminal justice system. In interviews that lasted three to four minutes, reinforced children were or were induced to make 35% false accusations against Paco compared to the 12% for non-reinforced children. For fantastic questions, the false accusations rate was even higher at 52% for reinforced children versus 5% for non-reinforced children. Some even believe that the questioning itself that was done through the CII would lead or has led to false memory syndrome in some of the children, which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, But there are definitely children who do believe that they were molested here. Yeah. Uh, Clinical psychiatrist uh, Dr. Michael P. Maloney testified as an expert witness and was highly critical of the techniques used, calling them improper, coercive, directive, problematic, and adult-directed, and that many of the statements given in the interview process were, quote, generated by the examiner. The recordings and transcripts contained far more of the adults speaking than the children, and due to these interviews, fun fact, it was found that 360 children had been abused. So, there was one doctor who performed medical examinations and took photos claiming the children, uh, some of the children were found to have minute scarring caused by anal penetration, though there were those who thought these were based on unsubstantiated, unsubstantiated, Jesus Christ. (laughs) There were those who thought these were based on unsubstantiated medical histories. Only 41 of the 360 children testified at the pre-trial hearings and fewer than 12 for the actual trials. Seven people were put on trial for these alleged crimes. Virginia McMartin, who opened and ran the business. Her daughter, Peggy McMartin Bucky, who was basically running all the admin stuff as her mother was aging. Peggy's children, Ray and Peggy Ann. And three different teachers, Mary Ann Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette or Babs Spitler. And now these other three teachers were like, for lack of a better word, pillars of the community. (laughs) (laughs) I know we we talked shit about pillars of the community in the Dennis Rader episode. But uh, yeah, these were people who are well respected. They were beloved by their community. And everybody was like, what the hell? So on March 22nd of 1984, they were charged with 115 counts of child abuse, which was later then expanded to 321 counts involving 48 children. There were 20 months of just preliminary hearings. Uh, the prosecution presenting a theory of sexual abuse. Uh, Lael Rubin was the lead prosecutor at the time. Pastor and Smith actually were brought in, like I said, as experts um, and met with parents and children who were involved. And there was a lot of belief that they had influenced these kids and their testimonies that they would later give. The charges against everyone but Peggy McMartin Bucky and Ray Bucky were dropped in 1986 after the new DA, Ira Reiner, uh, called the evidence, quote, incredibly weak because he right. Yeah, he right, though. (laughs) Peggy and Ray remained in custody while they waited for their trial. Peggy's bail was set as a at a cool million uh, while Ray was denied bail completely. 
The first trial began on July 13, 1987. Uh, seven medical witnesses were called by the prosecution. And uh, this is where I'm confused as to why this was allowed to happen. But uh, the defense tried to rebu- rebuke them with um, several witnesses. But the judge was tired, I guess, and wanted to save time. So he limited to, he limited them to only one. And the prosecution... The pro- oh my god. Words today. I believe in you. <laughs> the, the prosecution... <laughs> used this as their advantage and was basically like look we had seven expert witnesses and the defense only has one so who are you gonna believe in october george freeman was called as a witness to testify against ray bucky saying that he'd confessed while he was in a jail cell with uh while they were in a jail cell together never mind the fact that in order to guarantee his testimony the prosecution agreed to give him immunity for all of his previous Charges of perjury. Jesus. (laughs) Peggy appeared in good spirits uh, during the trial. And according to Los Angeles Times, she passed the long hours crocheting, drawing pictures, and reading religious literature. But during the 11 days on the witness stand, when asked about claims uh, that she and her son had molested and threatened children, she indignantly responded, never. At one point, though, she did admit that she herself had been uh, molested as a child. Um... What I loved about Peggy and these pictures is she's wearing like this blazer with little like little teddy bears and shit attached to the collar. Like that's what she would wear to school. And she was just like wearing her nice school outfits with these funny little teddy bears on it. I'm like, I love that you're wearing that to court, ma'am. Please be my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) After three years of testimony and nine weeks in deliberation by the jury, Peggy Martin, uh, I'm sorry, Peggy McMartin, uh, Bucky was found, uh, she was acquitted of all the charges. Ray, however, was cleared of only 52 of the 65 counts against him and was freed on bail after having spent five years in prison waiting. Many jurors believed that the children had in fact been molested, but due to the lack of evidence, they could not know for sure who had committed the abuse The abuse beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, some of those children had been molested. Like, yes. just statistically speaking of how many kids they were talking about. But... Do I think that they were... It doesn't were... mean somebody at the daycare did Yeah, it. and it doesn't mean that they were whisked away down a hidden tunnel to watch someone flush a baby down a toilet. Like... Exactly. <laughs> uh, on May 7th, 1990, Ray was tried uh, for six of the 13 counts that he was not acquitted for, but the trial resulted in a hung jury on July 27th of 1990. The prosecution finally gave up trying to obtain a conviction, and he was... Uh, he had been in prison for five years without being convicted of any crime. The longest and most expensive case in U.S. history, like I said, resulted in exactly zero convictions and ruined an entire family. The preliminary hearing alone took 20 months. The case saw a rotation of six judges, 17 attorneys, and hundreds of witnesses. The McMartin School was obviously closed and later dismantled. In 2005, one of the allegedly abused children came forward as an adult and recanted and apologized in the Los Angeles Times. Others, like uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Koifkiofi, I think her name was, she maintains that she was abused and molested at the daycare. There was an oxygen documentary on it, and she's like, no, it happened to me. And that's what makes me wonder, is that the the false memory syndrome, or did it really happen? Like, I want to know. Yeah, did it happen to I some of the answers. kids? Yes. And I mean, there's not to say like if she's, you know, saying that she got molested at the daycare doesn't necessarily mean that she got molested by the person 
you right. know, or things like that, too. Like, it could have been somebody who was on staff who got fired because they knew something yep. was wrong. Like, they, they didn't obviously think that it was that bad, but, you know. The McMartin family successfully sued the parent of one child at the school for slander in 1991, but they were awarded only $1 in damages. Jesus. Peggy How Ann insulting. was reinstated as a teacher, right? Uh, she was reinstated as a teacher uh, after the charges were dropped. They almost immediately, she was like, I didn't do anything. Can I please be a teacher? And they were like, yes, you can be a teacher again. Uh, but Ray, Ray went on to complete law school after the trial. I don't blame him. Yeah. I'd be pissed too. So I, I said a little bit at the beginning, there were some parallels and we talked a little bit about, you know, I don't, for lack of a better term, the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, but this one was really interesting to me because, you know, they, they've talked about the satanic panic and like the witch hunts um, hand in hand. But uh, this one really got me. I Real quick, I got a lot of my info from today's story from Professor Douglas Olinder at the University of Missouri. So he created this website hosted by the school called Famous Trials. And along with that, he actually has information um, that are parallels between the witch trials and the daycare sex abuse hysteria. Shout out to you, Dougie. Thanks for making that website. <laughs> So one, they were both heavily dependent on the testimonies of children and both situations urged others to believe their stories. Quote, in practice, that generally meant believe the children when they are making remotely plausible accusations, but ignore the inconsistencies in their stories. Yeah. Two, accusations multiplied over time and often new targets of accusations were those who were skeptical of the charges or came to the defense of the accused. Three, origins in behaviors and statements of children with innocent interpretations are interpreted in the most ominous way. Yeah. Experts finding meaning in unlikely places, like in witch trials, they were, they would, like, the moles on her body are used as signs of familiars. Like, you have, I don't, I don't fucking know. Yeah, like, like the devil's shit like that. Yes. Whereas in the SRA cases, drawings of hands on stick figures were seen as signs that a child had been molested. But, as if a child has never seen a hand before. <laughs> Another example was that a child's dislike of tuna was seen as evidence that the child had been exposed to, quote, vaginal smells. Oh, my God. The investigations oh God. were. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, number five is the investigations were problematic, leading to evidence putting the burden of uh, innocence on the accused and not the other way around. And six, the amount of injustice being faced was increased by the fact that others were unwilling or feared stepping forward to say this whole process is fucking ridiculous uh he was quoted as saying uh, people in both instances feared that by doing so they might either face accusations themselves or hurt their standing in their community be it the church community in salem for example or the journalism community in the daycare cases because this was such a huge huge thing like people were like these motherfuckers they're the worst make them burn and so many people were politically motivated by this that journalists were almost fearful of coming out and saying this doesn't add up because their paper might suffer because it or they might lose their job because of it in the kern county case alone over two dozen people were convicted due to this moral panic despite complete lack of corroborative physical evidence while the Justice Department debunked the myth of satanic ritual abuse cults in 1992, 
There were still police training videos into the mid-90s on how to deal with satanic cults. And boy, if you're looking for a fun time on YouTube, I do highly (laughs) recommend. (laughs) Maybe we'll share some of our favorites on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, the list of victims in these cases, these crimes, these false crimes, I don't even know. They go on. And like at least three people are still serving uh, sentences in prison for related crimes, including Cuban immigrant Frank Fuster, a man named Patrick Figured, and Joseph Allen. Pazder's book, by the way, has been uh, discredited since. In a magazine, uh, there was an interview with Michelle's father, Jack Proby, who denied all allegations, especially against Michelle's mother, Virginia, who had died in 1964. And he refuted, he said he could refute all of the allegations in the book, essentially. Yeah. They failed to mention that she had two sisters. Like, where are the sisters in this? Why was it only Michelle? And he also pointed out, I would like to say, hello, the two Catholic subjects of the book were divorced and remarried to each other. Like, how are, if you're going to say this is a big thing about religion, how can you overlook this part? Yeah. There were no reports of the car crash that are mentioned in the book, um, despite the fact that a local paper would report on all accidents at the time. Former neighbors and teachers came forward and said there's no indication of her being missing for the time needed to partake in an 81-day ritual. Uh, Kerr Kahulian uh, noted in their ni- in their 2002 article that they wrote for a magazine that this was unlikely as the ri- the rituals um, were said to have taken place in Ross Bay Cemetery, as Michelle claimed, because she did in fact scream for 25 minutes in one of her sessions that was recorded. And that was supposed to be her reenacting exactly what she went through. How unlikely is it that in a neighborhood, this is a residential area that this that this cemetery is in, essentially, that she could scream for 25 minutes, surrounded by hundreds of participants, and this would go unnoticed. Yeah. So, yes. yeah, like the only this way that dis- you could do that is if you had some sort of like crazy underground mausoleum situation where just like no one saw yep. it. Yep. And the likelihood of that existing, especially in the U.S. is or North America is so slim. Yeah. But yeah, so this book has basically just been like forgotten at this point by people who weren't directly involved. Like you don't hear about this anymore because yeah. um, it's not the Dungeons and the Dragons. <laughs> But anyway, that's what I got for you. I hope that gave you a little insight onto the types of shit that went down after this book was released. I didn't want it. There were like 13 separate cases that were listed on just on just Wikipedia. And I was like, I'm going to pick the baddest bitch out of these. (laughs) So I that's what I got. All right. So real quick, I do want to say I genuinely do not like normally back up people who are being accused of child molestation. But I feel this is just a huge miscarriage of justice as i've said previously and i i there's nothing to go on here yeah and as much as i looked there was there were not enough people saying yes this really happened for me to feel comfortable saying that these people should burn in hell yeah but most of them are dead now anyway so okay so my case so we're gonna do some wee woos so we got wee woos for suicide potentially two possibly one is a murder um and some animal death um animal death no and so nothing graphic really um and i guess some like i don't know threats to children but nothing ever really comes of it okay uh so on the evening of july 26 1988 tate roland and chad johnston were hanging around um chad's truck 
and a large, I think it's horse apple tree. Uh, They were drinking beers in their hometown of Childress, Texas. When Johnston walked around to toss a beer can on the other side of the car, he, when he came back, he saw Tate Roland was hanging from the tree, uh, like by a rope. What? Ah, no. (laughs) At 6 p.m., Johnston rushed to Roland's family home and roused Roland's father, Jimmy, and his stepmother, Brenda. Brenda would later recall that Johnston was, quote, calm as he could be, no tear in his eye, no nothing. Together, the three of them returned to the tree where Jimmy cut his son down. There was one strange inconsistency with the story, however. When they looked over the body and then later on um, the autopsy report, Roland had two rope marks on his throat. One above his Adam's apple, which falls in line with a hanging because, you know, you catch your chin on the rope. Mm Mm-hmm. However, the second mark was below his Adam's apple, which is not at all consistent with the hanging. On July 28th, Johnston was interviewed by the police for a second time where his story changed some. Mm. He claimed that he had witnessed Roland attempt to hang himself once before he was successful. On the first attempt, the rope broke and the two friends returned to Roland's home and got another rope. And Johnston didn't tell anybody about it because he was afraid of being incriminated in the basically attributing to the suicide of Tate Roland. When they returned to the tree, Johnston claimed that Roland was able to successfully hang himself by standing on the hood of the car and then jumping off. Tate Roland's death was officially ruled a suicide. The theory was that he was having troubles handling the breakup with his girlfriend the year before. His family and friends, however, disputed this, reporting that he hadn't expressed to anyone being upset or depressed about his life at all. Hmm. He had even made plans to fill in as a coach for a friend's softball game that evening. So people would be looking for him and expecting him. That's not usually a MO with suicide. Yeah. Now I hear you all asking yourselves, but Roya, this is the satanic panic episode. Where's the Satan? Where's the panic? He's been in your heart the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. It didn't take long for rumors to start about Tate Rowland's suicide. According to reports, at Roland's funeral, a strange woman dressed in black head to toe, including a veil, came in and sat at the back of the funeral. She spoke to no one, and no one recognized her, and she left before it ended. I think I vaguely remember a Bailey Sarian episode on this. Seated at the front of the funeral was a young man who was reportedly quietly chanting suicide over and over again. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) A few days after the funeral, the police received a tip and later arrived at a spot a quarter mile away from the horse apple tree that Roland had hung himself at. At this tree, the police found a cow skull lodged within the tree and rocks piled up in front of it. The police were convinced they were looking at some kind of an altar. Oh, nope. One night, an officer was driving past the cemetery and saw a figure standing by Tate Roland's grave. Thinking it was a little weird, he circled back and decided to check it out. And the figure was gone, and the grave was covered in spit. Gross. Right? That's a lot of spit if it's covered. <laughs> More substantiate, unsubstantiated reports started to come in, including that there was a burning cross at Roland's grave, and that a local teacher's dog had been stolen and sacrificed. At the start oh. of school in the fall following the suicide, rumors in the high school swirled that Tate Rowland had been part of a cult and had been sacrificed by it as a result. 
Oh, no. The reason why he had been sacrificed in these rumors was that he refused to deliver a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child to be sacrificed. The story got even more twisted when the rumor turned to that it wasn't just any blonde-haired, blue-eyed child. It was either one of his stepmother's children or one of his sister's four daughters. Ew. To make it even weirder, at the time of this rumor kicking up, there have been several legitimate reports of strangers trying to lure children from school playgrounds in the area. A local mother reported to the police that a few days before Roland's death, she saw a... (laughs) This is one of my favorites. She saw a group of teenagers at the city park. How dare they? How dare. Um, And they were gathering gravel, was what they were doing. A heavy metal song that mentioned Satan was playing from one of the cars. How dare they listen to music? And after they left, she went up to see what they did, and they had formed the gravel into a perfect circle. And outside the circle was (gasps) 666, the sign of the beast. How dare they be teenagers? I think that's a lot. That's like my big, big thing with like satanic panic shows. Like these kids, they were literally just being kids. Yeah, I mean, yeah, kids are assholes. Like you were too. Um, I was. Uh, I was speaking to the Karen, not to you. Directly. Oh, well, I was, yeah. though. <laughs> I mean, who wasn't? Everyone was. Everyone was terrible. Still is terrible. Yep. Um. So the police also received a really weird phone call from another department located in Lockhart, Texas. Um, a girl from Childress who was visiting Lockhart told a girl in Lockhart that she had dreamed about a boy being hanged by a satanic cult. Hmm. This girl went on to say that she had dreamed that the cult met in an abandoned house with a red porch light in the tiny town of Kirkland, which is east of Childress. She said that the parents said that parents were involved in the cult and that some of the members had used a car to run a boy down a few years earlier. Sheriff's deputies looked into the comments and they did find a quote haunted house with a red porch light in Kirkland, Texas, that had recently and mysteriously been burned to the ground. Also, a couple of years earlier, a 15-year-old boy was leaving work for the night when he was hit by a car as he walked home. So, a little bizarre there. A little weird coincidences lining up, and I I believe that there is some credence in dreams, and some people have more access to the world in sleep than they do in waking hours. Yeah. Um, So on Halloween night in 1988, of course, a a rumor went around that the cult was going to complete another ritual using Roland's remains. Oh, shit. They were going to dig up his body to remove his collarbone and pinky knuckle. (laughs) That's very (laughs) I know, right? They just need the little knuckles. No big knuckles for them. As a result of these rumors, a group of eight teenagers met at the cemetery gates, curious as to what they might see. It's Halloween. You know, like, whatever. Halloween. (laughs) The teens... My anniversary. (laughs) The teens piled into a pickup... So they parked their cars at the cemetery gates and then piled into one person's pickup truck bed. To go out to Mm. the grave. And as they drove back toward the back of the cemetery where Roland's grave was located, they started to hear music playing that they had not heard at the front of the cemetery. 
and then suddenly headlights turned on where Roland's grave was. Startled, the truck driver whipped the truck around and raced towards the cemetery gates. Upon their drive back, the people in the bed of the truck reportedly saw pentagrams drawn on the cemetery shed, and they kept racing forward. Oh, boy. When they got to the gates, people started bailing out of the truck and running in different directions towards their car, and then drove off in separate directions, just trying to get away. The driver of the pickup truck kept going, seeing the lights following him until he got to the town courthouse, where the lights suddenly just turned off. Okay. And then soon after the Halloween situation, a young man named Ray Wilkes walked into the police station. He didn't really walk into the police station so much as he was brought in by the police, but you know. Mm, yeah. Wilkes was another one of Childress's renegade teenagers, and he had been arrested for stealing a car and drunk driving, which had resulted in him crashing into a utility pole. During the booking, he confessed that he was a member of a satanic cult, and he had been at the tree when Roland was hanged. Oh, shit. He later states that he does not recall saying that, and saying that he was drunk and he could not remember what he said. Well, to me, that's also fair. Of course, no one was slandered quite like Roland's former girlfriend, Karen. She was a... Well, I mean, with a name like that. <laughs> she was accused of being the cult's queen bee and having lured Roland into the cult. She also allegedly <gasps> practiced witchcraft and was known to have <gasps> what? a Ouija board. How could she? In the 80s, how could she have a Ouija board? It's probably one of the fucking Mattel Ouija boards, like... (laughs) Right? Hey, I wanted one. I had no idea what they did, but I wanted one. (laughs) The story and rumors eventually started to die down, though. But then another tragedy struck the Roland family with the death of Terry Trosper. Trosper was the older sister of Tate. Oh. Trosper had been going through some hard times. She was separated from her husband and had given up custody of her four girls and started running with a bad crowd. Trosper's new boyfriend was a 28-year-old ex-con named Ricky Bradford, who was close friends with a 22-year-old man named Darwin Wilkes, which was Ricky Wilkes's brother, the guy who confessed to being there when Tate Roland was hanged. Hung. Oh, okay. Hanged. (laughs) I remember that Sherlock episode. (laughs) On the night of her death, Trosper, Bradford, and Darwin Wilkes and some of their friends were at the Wilkes' house drinking. Trosper was drinking heavily, and at the time of her autopsy, her blood alcohol level was 0.23, just twice the legal amount. Dang. Um, so, reportedly, when Ricky Bradford woke up the next day, he found her dead in his bed, already cold and stiff. Which, also, uh, just a random suggestion, if you're gonna be wild and drink a lot and you go to bed and you're feeling nauseous, fill a backpack up with some clothes or some books and stuff and put it on your back so you can't roll over onto your back, because they're saying that she she choked on her own vomit. She choked, yeah. And so if you can't lay on your back, you can't choke. That's that's fair. Um, so one of Trosper's good friends, Lisa Barber, um, said that Trosper had never believed that Tate Roland had committed suicide. She was always firmly in the um, side of something bad happened and the suicide was a part of a cover-up. Mm. She didn't necessarily adhere to the, like, it was a satanic cult mindset, 
but she definitely didn't think that her brother would kill himself. Right. Which, I mean, that is something that I think a lot of people who go through the trauma of a relative suicide goes through. It's just like, there's no way I would have known. But yeah, given all of the signs of what happened, it definitely seems unusual for Tate Roland to have killed himself, especially if he had made plans with friends to go to and he didn't seem in like distress at the time he wasn't like having a break he didn't seem like in a manic state or anything from what everything i read so also found in her autopsy were high levels of the psychiatric drug elevil um oh i've not heard of that which is a antidepressant that has like a light sedative function to it okay um so of course trosper's death was connected to tate's through rumor saying that she was another victim of the cult because she, quote, knew too much or was, quote, getting too close. Um, Ricky Bradford admitted that Terry once told him that Tate had warned her to keep her daughters in the house because the cult was going to sacrifice one of them in a satanic ritual. Roland's family seemed mired in bad luck when it came to their kids, though. Uh, Terry was the fourth of Jimmy's six children to die. Um, One died in infancy of crib death. Another died at four in a car accident. Tate committed suicide and Terry presumably died by accident. And in 1988, to have four of your six kids die is pretty unusual. Yeah, for real. Um, Jimmy and his then wife, Brenda, who was the stepmother of the kids, demanded an investigation into the deaths of Terry and Tate. Not at all sufficient, sufficiently pleased with the results that they had gotten. So the Childress County Sheriff, Claude Lane, refused to investigate Tate Rowland's death, insisting that it was a suicide. And this, of course, caused more rumors to swirl that the police were covering up for the cult. However, Lane was jailed for cannabis charges, (laughs) and so the case was then reopened for investigation under the new sheriff. They re-interviewed people and explored ways to explain some of the more more mysterious parts of the deaths. Um, A few weeks after Terry's death, there was another huge crazy twist in the case. Uh, Darwin Wilkes, one of the people who had been in the house when Terry died, attempted to kill himself by swallowing between 25 and 30 tablets of Elevil. He left a suicide note that read, quote, I know something that the cops don't know. I know who killed Terry. I can't live anymore. Whoa. Why didn't he say who did it? He survived. Oh, good. And when he was coherent enough again, the police asked him about the note, and he said that he did not recall writing it. Oh, shit. Suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, a forensic pathologist from Amarillo, Dr. Sparks Viasi, Viasi, um, Dr. V, had been asked to help with the investigation. (laughs) He said that an autopsy should have been conducted a long time ago on tape. There hadn't been an autopsy done at the time of his death because they were confirmed it was a suicide. They cut him down from Mm. the tree. After examining the photos of the rope burns on Tate's neck, Dr. V said it might have been determined, he might have been able to determine it if Tate had been strangled first and then hanged had they done an autopsy. Based on, are bones broken? Are bones not? Yeah. Um, Three years after Tate's death... On July 27th, 1991, Tate's body was exhumed from the Childress Cemetery. The headline of the paper read, quote, 
autopsy to determine if death was sacrifice. Hell yeah. This was the first time the Satan rumors had gone public, and the local media of the surrounding areas swarmed to the sleepy town of Childress. Mm. One television crew reportedly obtained an interview from a solemn a solemn childress man who said that cult members had been seen dancing around bonfires on the banks of the Red River. And the DA, David McCoy, released one interesting piece of information stating that Chad Johnston, who was the person who saw um, and helped reportedly Tate roll and hang himself, had told a third story to the sheriff that Tate didn't try to hang himself twice but was messing around with a rope, swinging on the tree, and that when Chad came back from around the car, Tate had hung himself. Um, hanged himself. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say anything. I even wrote it correctly and said it wrong. (laughs) Um, of course nothing is super easy. Tate's casket was not airtight, and the body had decomposed too much for Dr. V, the forensic pathologist from Amarillo, to make any conclusive judgments about the hanging. The autopsy did test though did find something interesting elleville in his system the same that darwin wilkes had tried to od on and that was found in high levels in terry trosper's autopsy elleville it was suggested could have been the very thing that the cult used to sedate someone and then kill them Mm. as the drug was not a party drug but an antidepressant with light sedative. It wasn't something that, like, the kids were using to get high or for a release or for enjoyment or something. Um, In September 1991, McCoy, the DA, convened a grand jury to study the evidence. At the hearing, a great deal of gossip was basically just repeated. But a little truth came out. Because some of the most important subpoenaed witnesses, including Darwin Wilkes and Chad Johnston, didn't show up. Oh, shit. The grand jury did ask that uh, Terry Trosper's body be exhumed, and Dr. V, after studying the previous autopsy of her death, said that it was unlikely she could have choked to death, since it was very clear that she had been lying face down. Oh, like she had um... been rolled over. Yeah, what the fuck is that word? When, like, your blood Lividity. settles in one part. Lividity, yes, thank you. I was like, I know this, I know this, I'm a death expert! Um, this <laughs> resulted in Terry's casket being lifted out of the ground as well. Less than a week before Halloween- What the fuck is wrong with this medical exam? <laughs> the previous one? Yeah, man, it's fucking yeah, crazy. Yeah, the, the original guy. Yeah. Was he, was he a part of Maybe. Maybe he was all a cover-up for the cult. Oh my god, I believe it. <laughs> I'm in this. I'm in this deep. Less than a week before Halloween 1991, the new autopsy results were announced. Terry had died of asphyxiation, most likely due to smothering. The report said that contusions on her body, especially on her inner thigh and bruises on her mouth, indicated blunt trauma likely incurred during an assault. Dr. V said that he would pursue this as a homicide, not an accidental death, and that multiple people could have very easily and probably likely were involved with the killing. Some to hold her down and others to smother her. That it wouldn't be something that would necessarily be easy for one person to accomplish. Right. Especially if it was only a light sedative. Yeah. Um, after this, it was hard to find anyone in town that didn't believe that a crazy satanic cult was on the, li- on the loose. I mean, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> I'm not even there. All sorts of rumors were swirling. Uh, The cult had been meeting in a mobile home factory. 
a dry cleaning store. A baby lamb with its heart cut out had been found. A child-dressed man had shown that he had the powers of Satan by pointing at a cat and commanding it to die. Couldn't find if the cat died, just he pointed at a cat and said, die. Well, I hope the cat didn't die. It was pretty crazy in the area. When the First Baptist Church in Childress presented a Satanism seminar, more than 450 Ooh. residents listened intently as an occult expert told of cults luring teens with heavy metal music and teaching them to dig up coffins at the cemetery and have sex with the bodies. Wow, this reminds me a lot of that story we did in India. <laughs> During the grand jury trial, it came out that Ellaville was the Ellaville was probably from Frank Wilkes's father, so the grandfather. Um, Frank Wilkes took the stand to say that Darwin Wilkes had told him that Terry had been murdered by someone in the house that night, but no one in the house would confess to it. However, the grand jury didn't get much further, leaving the situation with just as many questions as answers and no real clear motive or evidence other than the autopsies. Mm. That's how it went for about four months until there was another possible break in the case. Frank and Darwin Wilkes went to the sheriff's department and said that Ricky Bradford, who had been the boyfriend at the time of Terry Trosper, confessed to them that he had killed Terry. The Wilkeses alleged that Ricky had threatened to kill either one of them if they snitched. And the, this resulted in the sheriff arresting Ricky Bradford on first-degree murder charges. Ricky, however, was adamant that he had done said nothing of the sort and that Darwin was flat broke and was setting Ricky up in order to receive the $1,000 reward in the Trosper case. Ooh. With this information... <laughs> with this information into the Trosper case, it triggered, of course, another wave of satanic cult rumors. Mm-hmm. A few days after Ricky Bradford was arrested, a white cat was found with its heart cut out. No! Not a kitty cat. And no one knows what that could mean, but that evidently happened. Oh, no. Um, Then, just before Ricky's murder charge went to grand jury, David McCoy, the DA, his house mysteriously burned to the ground. Like, yo, I'm just gonna say, if you're committing crimes, uh, you're probably not gonna want to burn down the house of the person who's gonna rail the hardest against you. (laughs) Um, Just just my opinion, (laughs) anyway. A few weeks after this, a middle-aged couple was found guilty of possessing art. (laughs) okay um so it was allegedly a segue allegedly strange art and i couldn't find anything as to like why they were looked into for anything or like what happened for this to be found out but evidently they had some art that some of it was pornographic and some of it was interpreted as satanic one had a devilish goat head drawn over a human body Another was the outline of Texas with the inside of it being a pentagram. <laughs> that is the most Texas Satanist thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I when I had to go to Dallas, when I had to go to Dallas for the the vet thing, I was like, I wanna find I wanna find me a cutting board in the shape of Texas. And I was like, something something is coming home with me that's in the shape of Texas because only in Texas can you find all of the things. Oh my god, you can do it in Oklahoma too. It's getting bad up here oh. too. It's the same bullshit. 
got i was like i didn't end up getting him i didn't end up getting a, a texas cutting board by the way i just got a stuffed armadillo instead <laughs> not like a taxidermied one yeah like a yeah. plush a plushy armadillo um also found in this house was a thick metal rod that mccoy describes as quote some kind of staff that the priest of a cult organization is supposed to have because <laughs> you know you know what that is some kind of staff <laughs> Yep. <laughs> they found a curtain rod and said it was a magical staff. Yep. That sounds <laughs> that sounds very accurate actually. So, no one in Childress has ever confessed membership to a cult. No concrete evidence has ever been found that a satanic cult has ever operated in Childress. And it's more likely that Tate's death was one of an imp- impulsive suicidal act of youth. And Terry's death, while possibly murder, was more likely due to personal problems rather than supernatural ones. Hmm. And while we do know that actual violent cults have and do exist, not necessarily satanic ones. Except you. Yeah, we'll get to you eventually. It does seem that the situation of whatever happened in Childress is something more in line with the Salem Witch Trials than any active real cult. Mm-hmm. So you can still, like like you were talking about too, you can see the parallels between the Absolutely. witch trials and this of just like, it's almost all swirled around by teenagers and accusations are thrown, but nothing's ever substantiated. And yeah. it's all just, you know, like there's um, accusations from several members of both the Roland family and uh, his girlfriend, uh, Karen. I didn't write her last name down. I don't know why. But her family as well, that. (laughs) This happens every time. Yep, she starts cooking. (laughs) Um, But there were accusations from family members involved in the crime and the Wilkes family as well. That all of this was just really a big power grab for McCoy, the DA, to get clout. Mm, Yep. Similar to the political wheeling and dealings in the the McMartin case. Yeah. But anyway, that's what I got for my satanic panic situation. <sighs> Man. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is a that's a situation. Yeah, and it's like it makes me curious to if if Tate uh Roland's death was actually a suicide or yeah. was it a like he and Chad got into a fight that got out of hand kind of thing. Yeah, I want to you know. know. Not that I'm not that I'm accusing anybody, no one send me a letter, but it makes me wonder if there's not more to that situation that the suicide is was actually a cover up. Yeah. You can send me a letter. <laughs> I'll go after Roy. I just for meant you. to cease and desist. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I like letters. You can write to me. <laughs> Give me a P.O. box. Yeah, right. <laughs> If you want us to get a P.O. box, please send us an email requesting that we get a P.O. box. <laughs> if you want to send Casey weird shit. Please. That she can... I live for weird shit. That she shit. can share with me via mail to my house. I I have a whole shelf of weird shit. I... Got a kitty cat skull. I desire more weird shit. Got a coyote skull. I've got a little bat skull. It's like this big. Nobody sees... Yeah, I was like, it's like an inch big. <laughs> I've got a little mummified frog. I have a lot of dead things. I was checking for my views. Um, what? What? Thanks for hanging out with us today while we discuss the wacky satanic world of the 1980s. 
We hope that you will reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. Send us an email at strangeunusualpodcasts at gmail.com. If you're sending a listener's story, we just ask that you put listener's story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little more easily. Was there ever a satanic cult uh, fear in your town? Tell us about how it affected you. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't have a second one to follow <laughs> yeah. up with. Yeah, your your uh, story was a little child molestation heavy to have something. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to hear about. Yeah, no, that please side don't. Of uh, yeah. <laughs> you can also find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast or on our personal accounts Royal Rampage and Calamity Casey, where we post the weird shit in our personal lives. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Royal Rampage. We're on Facebook. Just search for the Strange Unusual Podcast. Uh, we're also now streaming ish. No, we're not. Take it back. I'm not even going to talk about it. <laughs> Unless one of us starts streaming again, I'm just going to stop saying this part. <laughs> uh, but if you'd like, you can join us over on patreon.com slash strange unusual, which uh believe we have a shout out. Yeah, so we got a, a new Patreon supporter, um, Dana Lee. Skunk apes. What's up? <laughs> I believe Dana was in your, uh, she's the one that keeps, we keep making fun of Florida and she keeps coming at you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my friend Dana. Hi, Dana. Love you. Uh, yes, Dana is my 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 badass in uh, Dark Ages. She's uh she's cold. <laughs> <laughs> but you can watch my Dark Ages game at uh, Henna Gaming on YouTube and on Twitch. Uh, yeah. So thanks, Dana. Uh, you'll have some polls and some new episodes to catch up on on the on the old patreon and an there. access to the discord that casey needs to send you i should automatically oh, okay. do it but i will send it i wasn't sure uh so you can join us over there and uh hang out with us and uh dana at the <laughs> patreon.com so strange than usual uh we also completely understand that right now covid is still doing its thing people are still not recovered and sometimes giving a little means a lot so if you can't support us financially uh just you know shout us out to your friends share like subscribe review rate whatever you can yeah, do i will read any five us. star reviews on air even if they are mean i don't care yeah like this bitch needs to lay off the chocolate milk five stars oddly specific <laughs> as neither one of us are drinking chocolate milk to my knowledge nope <laughs> but you could say that we would read yeah it. Um, another thing that, you know, helps us out a lot too is like interacting with our social media, you know, retweeting us or um, sharing our posts on Facebook, things like that. It means a lot yep. because it gets the word out about our podcast and it helps us get listenership, which is essential in us getting um, potential ad revenue and stuff in the future. Yep. It's, you know, the life. It'd be really cool, guys. You guys would be real cool if you were to... <laughs> Look, we're we're thirty one year old ladies. We just we just need help. <laughs> anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time because I know this episode is gonna be long. Yeah, sorry about that. Except for I'm yeah, not. I'm not either. Bye. <laughs> Hail Satan. <laughs>